Hello, everyone. Uh, today I'm going to give you a talk about how Sourcegraph um, uh, scaled our software as a service to thousands of clusters. Um, and it's going to be kind of a fun talk because it's going to be, I think, a different path than I would have taken a few years ago and kind of shows some of the trade-offs of uh, going to Kubernetes right away and waiting a while. So uh, next slide. Yeah, a little bit about me. Um, yeah, I work at Sourcegraph. Um, Sourcegraph is trying to bring code search to every developer. Um, uh, I originally helped launch our multi-tenant uh, cloud offering, so that's Sourcegraph.com, which you can use today to like search the entire world of open source. Um, that uh, so this is basically a story of how we came and saw that um, uh, like we started to switch and see a lot more demand for a highly isolated environment instead. So next slide. So yeah. Oh, next slide. Yeah, so the story so far. Um, so basically, Sourcegraph is a code intelligence platform that allows people to read and understand your code. Um, we have Sourcegraph.com, which is our multi-tenant offering that basically try to index as much of the world as possible. Um, in the past, Sourcegraph was deployed on-prem, so customers would deploy it, and uh, they would manage it themselves. Um, and then over time, as typically happens, we saw more and more demand from customers for us to manage it. And, uh, you know, begin in a highly isolated, uh, compliant way. Because, um, again, they're trusting us with their code because we, we need their code in order to search it. So another thing we also noticed was that um, in our pursuit of, like, some extreme scale, we had uh, some, like, scaling problems that weren't worth it to solve uh, at, the, at this time. Or, um, like, for example, we have a feature called Code Insights, which allows you to uh, understand, uh, like, metrics based on your code. This works for 99% of uh, our customers, but it wouldn't work for like our largest scale. So it's like, okay, I think it's time that we like invest it in uh, running uh, multiple Sourcegraph instances instead. So next slide. So we actually did have a single tenant offering um, that we kind of on the sly built um, for a few specific customers when they had, um, they're unable to deploy Sourcegraph on-prem because either they didn't have a DevOps team. Uh, that was one thing. Or they had like infrastructural differences, um, like they had customers that like ex exclusively run serverless. So Sourcegraph as a, as a product just really meet with the skills they had on prem, and it's fairly challenging to run. Um, so this is kind of our Docker Compose setup, which basically ran in a single GCP VM, and uh, yeah, it was it did have some issues. So next slide, and. Um, so we had a blue-green deployment model with lots of manual steps. Again, this was kind of built in essentially a week. And uh, it was you know, something that we're like, we basically we're, we inherited this. And we had this, a blue-green deployment model that um, required us to uh, basically, you know, basically, all, even, though was, even though it was using Docker, uh, Docker Compose, it was basically like a machine, machine image. We'd really take down the entire VM, start it back up, all these steps are in our handbook for what we had to do in order to upgrade, uh, which we did monthly. So as we scaled to like 20 and 30 instances, it became a massive issue and a massive time sink just to do this. So, you know, of course, like we're an infrastructure team. Uh, next slide. So yeah, Kubernetes, right? That's what we're going to do. We're going to immediately move away from this old, outdated Docker Compose idea. Um, we're going to leverage Kubernetes um, because you know a lot of the paradigms in Kubernetes are just something that uh, you know makes a lot more sense, and we're all kind of eager to kill this whole thing. Um, that I think was 
um, you know, we kind of thought about this a little more and um, found that sometimes we have to like balance the business needs with uh, what might be like desired as I think uh, on the infrastructure team and how to move quickly. So uh, next slide. Um, yeah, so we had, um, so we wanted to, like, the reasons not to go full Kubernetes out of the gate were pretty numerous. So first of all, we wanted to be very incremental because we already have customers using this. Uh, we also had uh, SOC 2 compliance at this time on, the, on, these, on these instances. So again, like, we're definitely not only building the plane while it's moving, but we're building the plane in a, a state where um, any kind of uh, serious issue or failure to meet compliance regulations, and we can jeopardize the entire product, right? So this just really increases the risk to the customer and a risk to the company. Um, but we did like, you know, there's some paradigms in Kubernetes we wanted to use. Like one, uh, you know, we should, shouldn't need to take down the entire VM to upgrade the application, right? So let's just not do that anymore. Very simple kind of uh, uh, thing that we, you know, pulled out there. Another thing we saw was um, the like leverage managed services. Uh, we're lucky that we're a cloud native company and that many of the things we used to run inside of GCP, um, inside the VM, inside our Docker Compose deployment like Postgres, uh, we ran an object store. Um, many of those services are probably like, easily available in cloud and it made a lot of sense just to externalize them and pull them out. Um, yeah, I think, oh, and we also had some other business requirements of quicker instance creation. So we wanted, again, manual time to spin up an instance. Let's just leverage some automation. Um, we don't necessarily need Kubernetes for that uh, yet. Uh, next slide. So we kind of intended on this like incre incremental 1.1 model of just focusing on increasing automation. Again, keeping Docker Compose, not bringing Kubernetes into the picture yet, but um, you know, decreasing the risk of a unknown unknowns with the full Kubernetes migration. Um, and we also like again this, the things are moving uh, change underneath us. So for example, we at this during this time we had another requirement come in from our code intelligence team to run Firecracker VMs so, so that we could run untrusted code again, maintaining compliance during this entire time. So this uh, taking these small uh, calculated risks to like start externalizing services while we still have customers running on top of them um, let us kind of slowly make the move um, instead of like doing a full blown. Uh, approach to changing it. Uh, next slide. Um, yeah, I just another kind of just hit on how the challenges of uh, architecture changes are still occurring because we're a startup and the um, challenges of like, you know, building a managed service when you're still building the service itself. Uh, next slide. So um, yeah, so the basic automation we added. Um, uh, was basically a Go CLI. This is you know, step one of automate everything. Um, this was basically allowed us to have a consistent API to uh, other teams as we we're uh, moving from v0 to v1.1. Customers are able to, uh, or other teams are able to basically just not care about the instruction underneath us, uh, basically provide a stable API in the form of a CLI. And common tasks that were previously manual steps, we scripted out in a CLI. So again, just kind of your simple, uh, you know, conservative steps in adding automation, scaling the team, and reducing um, uh, like the risk to the company. Uh, next slide. So another thing we found that we're GitHub Actions during this time is really, if you're a DevOps team, um, definitely spend some time looking deeply into those. Um, 
they provided a really straightforward way to kind of throw a quick poor man's UI so we could provide self-service access to other teams before they would have to talk to us and engage with us in order to do basic things like upgrade an instance or um, uh, like create an instance for them. Pulling that all into, out into GitHub Actions allowed us to simplify the process massively so we weren't constantly getting pinged. Um, so this would be something I you know, suggest other DevOps teams to look into is like when you're, you have a workflow that you have scripted out to the, the end of it, next step is to put it in just somewhere and some solution that uh, end users can consume fairly easily. Um, yeah, and we didn't actually have to build a UI, which was always nice. Uh, next slide. So we had uh, quite a few learnings in this V1.1 phase before v, uh, V2, which was the power of like incremental, uh, you know, incremental learnings led to some pretty serious surprises. Um, one of the ones was the fact that like the complexity of the application, uh, Kubernetes or Docker Compose for us really didn't change. Um, uh, like source graph, it's, you can look at our deployments models online. Um, it wasn't necessarily more difficult to run it in Kubernetes than it was in Docker Compose, but the infrastructure challenges we had were pretty large. Um, we're spending a lot of time doing these very large Terraform applies with very large modules. Um, there's a pretty big risk, um, blast radius-wise, to um, these large Terraform applies. If, uh, if any, there's uh, several times when we had outages that were basically linked to Terraform apply that wasn't fully either understood by the team or automation that went awry and a small change to one uh, module kind of bled into the overall apply and re resulted in a lot of uh, um, resources being recreated when they shouldn't have been. Um, I think another thing that we found was that, uh, so that was like one of the issues we found. Um, we also like really wanted to get towards a declarative uh, over imperative upgrade style. And this is again pulling out that you know instead of invoking that workflow to do something, just declare that's what you want. You like I want this to be version three, and let's write let's leverage Kubernetes paradigms like controllers and the control loop, just continually work that through. It's also I think a similar paradigm to what we see in GitOps today. Um, and another thing was yeah a, a few issues was also depending on on an external service for like GitHub Actions if there's a GitHub Actions outage. Um, that basically would, you know, uh, cause a lot of our self-service workflow to stop working and kind of made us even push harder for, okay, I think we're ready to like fully engage with a Kubernetes controller model um, with drift detection and automated infrastructure creation. So, um, again, okay, I think next slide. So one of our, I think, uh, bigger bets recently was, I think, really heavily leaning to CDKTF. So CDKTF is a, a tool that we use to um, leverage the Terraform we've already written, which we have quite a few, quite a large amount of Terraform. Um, all of our, uh, uh, basically all of our infrastructure is defined as infrastructure as code. Um, CDKF provided a way for us to uh, start to add basically additional automation into a controller um, without needing to essentially run manual Terraform applies, which we found to be problematic and concerning. They were pretty challenging um, to run Terraform like in a fully automated way. And CDKF team seemed to be and still appears to be, uh, I think, the easiest way of like, when you hit the limits of Terraform automation, what should be your next step? Seriously consider uh, CDKTF, for example. And that's something I would say, you know, if, should you use CDKF? Because it is, I think, a, still kind of a newer product and has some complexity costs. Um, if you're really like pushing Terraform with like dynamic blocks, um, and you're really like, um, I think, like pushing the like of what you can stuff in HCL. Uh, CDKTF kind of represents the next layer of abstraction. Um, 
Although it's still new, and it's still not without some challenges. So uh, next slide. So yeah, this is like a high-level kind of like description of some Terraform code in, on the left with some like, uh, like count operations to make it slightly more dynamic. Um, basically just turning on and off uh, IP allow lists. Um, and then we have the same kind of code in TypeScript um, with CDKTF. Um, let's get kind of an idea of how like this code can be similar. Um, it's, and again, you do need to know the language, the higher level language you're writing it in. You, do, you need to be familiar with it, but it was still a pretty easy, direct, and quick translation for our team. We were able to rewrite almost all the Terraform uh, like HTL we had pretty quickly in CDKTF. Um, so it wasn't nearly the uh, migration cost that we originally thought it was going to be. Um, next slide. And then, yeah, just some more high-level CDKTF uh, versus uh, Terraform. Um, and that was the, like, you want the higher level access to the Terraform primitives. Like, basically, if you like Terraform, you're using it a lot, and you like what Terraform can give you, just seriously think about, like, CDKTF as you start to increase, increasingly rely on Terraform in your stack. Um, also, what we noticed is that a good paradigm was to split out uh, your large modules into small, lots of sub-modules. It's a pretty easy flow with CDKTF due to its, uh, the concept of stacks. So CDKTF stacks allowed you to quickly auto-generate, um, uh, basically, uh, Terraform applies for multiple different steps. Um, yeah, and I think the, uh, the, some of the cons that we noticed that have recently been improved were that the Go, the Go compile times were, like, in a, a team that uses GoLang quite a bit, uh, like 15 minutes sometimes to pull in all the different types we needed to, like, run the Google Cloud providers. Um, this is recently... Uh, been massively improved in the that's supposed to be the 0.13 release of CDKTF. So this is no longer such an issue. But before we were spending multiple minutes to like add all the types to our uh, code base and uh, to generate the stacks. Um, also, it's kind of uh, relies on some technically unsafe uh, type, uh, some some type safety issues because of its um, uh, how like we basically goes from the Terraform providers to Go. A lot of times you end up with just interfaces. So those who are Go developers in here kind of you lose a lot of that type safety. Um, but I think that's an, an open area where they're looking to improve it. And then also the last little joke was many times we would create so many CKF type files that we would literally crash the GitHub UI um, as we added all those types to our code base. Um, and next slide. So yeah, and then uh, this is like we started. Again, our goal here with version two is to put make everything as declarative as possible really leverage you know, what's great about Kubernetes. Um, that's kind of what led us to this uh, controller uh, model. Um, and we, so this is kind of what we scripted out. We even, uh, before we even built the controller, we actually wrote the type. And this is our uh, basically our source graph CRD, custom resource definition, um, which provides our, uh, my good on time, I think. Okay, cool, cool. Yep, I was making sure I was, yep. Um, and then, uh, so that this CRD provides a quick way for us to scaffold out all the, um, like basically we added, uh, as you can see here, we added some sessions on like machine type, DNS name, all this, we put all this into the CRD. By doing that, um, we could kind of like scaffold out what we wanted to build. Um, and we found that like Kubernetes CRDs are useful even outside of Kubernetes just for defining your types, defining um, 
basically your uh, serializable format for your infrastructure. So here we've created our own type, which contains most of our information that we need. And then also um, this type lives inside of a Git repo, um, which was like several override files that allows us to kind of like, again, reduce uh, the variation between uh, different deployments because we can just kind of say, oh, this deployment is a medium-sized deployment, leverage this override file. Um, yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, and also to start, like again, just mention when you're starting building this uh, controller, you don't actually have to run it in the cluster. You can happily run it outside the cluster, um, like in a you know very manual CLI-based control loop. Um, and it basically provides us a, low, a lower risk way to iterate as we were kind of scaling out and getting familiar for the first time as a, a company with writing uh, Kubernetes controllers. Uh, next slide. And then, yeah, this is kind of like the long-term and like the like model of the controller today is we have basically our uh, customer declaration in GitHub, in GitHub uh, in Git, and then we have multiple, the core controller basically continually runs with our CRD definition, goes out, syncs, runs uh, basically a continuous Terraform uh, apply and Terraform plan. Um, we still haven't fully got to the point where at this point it just fires off an alert. We've noticed that the Terraform, uh, 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 like there's a diff, a diff detected at the infrastructure layer, still working out some uh, minor trouble with like fully, completely automated applies, but CDKTF has kind of given us like the foundation where we feel pretty comfortable to uh, keep doing that. Um, yeah, and then all these uh, clusters are individually controlled by that single CRD and again, isolated and um, yeah, and separate customer projects. Um, yep, uh, next slide. So uh, some of our future steps is just, you know, continuous work on the controller. Keep, uh, you know, adding additional steps, fully have completely automated Terraform applies without needing to fire off alerts when drift detected, and when drift is detected. Um, we think we can do that with CDKTF. I think the primitives there are strong enough to like fully automate it. Um, Multi-region is the next step for us too, is just as we're scaling out, um, we're looking toward, you know, again, by writing everything in Terraform, it's a very easy additional step because again, a lot of the Terraform providers we already have, just gonna make minor modifications to add additional regions. And then, uh, yeah, actually building a true UI that'll eventually create those CRDs um, behind you, I'll automatically commit those to the Git repo, and then, um, by like adding those get those CRDs to the repo, then having the controller automatically pick that up. So that would hopefully be I would be basically re-enable the self-service uh, flow without needing to depend on GitHub Actions. And next, and that's it. Next slide. Yeah. So any questions? Other question? I so the question I have is. Uh, why did you decide to use uh, Google Cloud SQL outside the Kubernetes cluster and not use the database inside Kubernetes? Like what was, did you do a pros and cons analysis or you just decided to go with it because it was a managed service? Yeah, so for us it was mainly just like reducing the operational burden at every step. So that we have thousands of clusters. We actually um, like uh, ran into some issues early on in our, in our uh, experience running Postgres in Kubernetes. That was basically our number one database service. So we ran into a few issues with it, and eventually just found that like running as a managed service took out a massive uh, um, like operational like burden as we were scaling. Um, we're still like exploring like the country role like Postgres operator, 
But at the time, that was a decision that we made on sourcegraph.com. Um, early on, just use Cloud SQL. So we really hadn't really investigated again to like if that's still the next move. But I think as we go into like the next iterations of uh, like managed services, we're probably looking to bring things back into Kubernetes as we get more comfortable running things in Kubernetes. Yeah. Uh, the follow-up question is: So you you said you do disaster recovery uh, workflows, you know, uh, all the time. Are you using um, Google Cloud SQLs? Uh, you know, disaster inbuilt HA and all of that for you? Yeah. So I think Google Cloud like allowed us to. Um, they have their uh, yeah they have like HA failover, but they also have the um, for the in the service now. But it's basically the ability to like restore like any time any point in time will last pet seven days. So we basically use that. In, we've had to use that once or twice. We have situations where like some uh, like service either wrote a ton of garbage data to the database, like the, the manual effort to like repair it was too much, and we're able to like roll back the database to a specific point in time before that release. Um, so like things like that are things that we'd expect to see in an equivalent. Um, if we wanted to use like the Postgres operator, right? We would need to like have those same tools just exist and not have to like fully engage with them. Is what we'd be looking for, I think, as we moved it back into Kubernetes. Thank you.